Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, folks. Welcome to Naval Month on the Napoleon Assist, as voted for by my Patreon supporters. I've got a quick favour to ask. If you enjoy the episode, drop a like, subscribe, and how about sharing or leaving a review? It'll take you a few seconds, but it makes a huge difference in helping to reach a wider audience. As ever, if you're interested in going even further to support the podcast, check out the links in in the description to discover how you can become a supporter, the perks that are involved, and how you can leave a one-off tip. Thank you all for your incredible support as we close in on 75,000 downloads, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Napoleonicist as we continue with Naval Month. So, in the past, we have brought you such great hits as Boney's Boys in Spain on Napoleon's Marshals. We have brought you Nosy's Boys in Spain on Wellington's Generals. So, today we are doing, yes, you guessed it, Napoleon's Admirals, Boney's Boys on the High Seas. Who better to join me for this extravaganza than the utterly wonderful master of, master of adventures in history land, Josh Proven, author of Bullock's Grain and Good Madeira on the second Maratha and Jat campaign. We've talked about that in a previous podcast. He's been the star who has filled our brains with knowledge for the previous Boney's Boys and Nosy's Boys. Josh, great to have you back again. How are you doing? It's great to be back, and I'm doing great as well. Many greats are happening right now, and we're going to have a great discussion about some great French admirals that you may never have heard of. Which is is why I'm kind of looking forward to this, because we started chatting about it. You came up with a list of people, and the more I looked at it, the more I thought, this is really good. We need more on this. We need mm. decent books. I mean, we talked about this in the past. That it would be really nice to have a proper study of Napoleon's marshals, but actually, proper study of Napoleon's admirals would be really nice yeah. as well. So let's start with a, a tricky little question. 
we have marshals. We've talked about them a fair bit in the past. We know how the marshal system works. Is there, however, such a thing as a seaborne marshal? Is there a naval equivalent? As far as I am aware, there is not a seaborne equivalent of a marshal. And I have a feeling that this is probably to do with the fact that Napoleon knew squat about how the Navy worked and wasn't interested in, its, in, in creating patronage uh, related to it. Okay, nice and sweet and short and sweet and to the point. Yeah, exactly. It's admirals. Admirals are the marshals of the sea, basically. It's fair enough. Fair enough. Actually, I mean, it would have been cool, wouldn't it? I mean, can you imagine how cool the uniform that they would have thought up for uh, Marshal de la Mer? It's like. <laughs> See, it even works, doesn't it? The, yeah. ta- the name, Marshal de la Mer. Your French is much better than mine, we have to admit. But yeah, it's it's an odd one. It, it is the lack of success part of the issue here. You know, there's there's not much for him to perhaps work with in terms of, hey, you did really well. I'm going to give you a commission and make you a marshal. Hmm. It's a, I mean, that's a good question. I, because he wasn't a sailor, he wasn't trained as a sailor. Um, and he didn't, and, and the marshal system seemed to sort of spring out of a war, like rewarding his buddies kind of, his and his colleagues basically um people who he thought could help him get along because he had nothing to do with having to bother with the sea except asking the directory now and again could you send a fleet over to italy and help me out with some supplies um i don't think he really just had i don't really think he had the interest in 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 doing anything despite the fact so i think it's less to do with the success of the french navy as his just sort of ignorance of it as a, a useful tool in what he was trying to do. Fair enough. Okay, so let's start looking at individuals, shall we? There's an obvious one here. Let's get the elephant out of the room, as it were. Villeneuve. Now, I've had an eye-opening chat with John Morwood um, about the guy's motivations in putting to sea at the end of the Trafalgar campaign. More on that on the 21st of October, folks. That's obviously waiting for Trafalgar Day to go out. But let's before we talk about Trafalgar, dig into, you know, the basics of the guy. Who was he? Where did he come from? And what's actually, perhaps most importantly, his wider career pre-Trafalgar? Well, uh, Amiral Pierre-Charles Villeneuve was born in 1763 in Valençon, which is in the Basses Alps. And he entered the Navy uh, in the Marines, I believe, in 1778. And he served in the American War under de Grasse and was made uh, Lieutenant de Vasseau uh, in 1786. And just, you know, getting it out of the way here, I'm going to try and de-anglicize a lot of the terminology here for the ranks. So I'm going to try and keep to the French ranks as I have read them. Um, uh, Lieutenant de Vasseau is, is, is a, could command a frigate, but could also, I believe, be a junior officer on a larger ship of the line. Um, so he was made that rank in 1786 and then Capitan de Vesso in 1793. Uh, his story is, is colored by the fact he was of noble blood um, and therefore similar in a way to many others. Uh, so when the revolution occurred, he was deposed and dismissed uh, as a noble, but reinstated in 1795. Uh, though to begin with, uh, the reinstatement was uh, placing him as a, as a major general of the Marine at Toulon. Um, interestingly enough, 
quite a lot of people of noble birth did get briefly retired, we'll say, you know, dismissed from the service, but then within a few years were brought back. Um, I guess it was just a test to, to see whether they were going to basically run off with the ships. Uh, but we'll, we'll get into that as, as we go on, because there's a lot of, there's actually, that's quite a common trend to find in the careers of French admirals. Um, in September of 1796, Villeneuve was made contre-admiral uh, contra and ordered to take a squadron from Toulon to Brest in preparation for the expedition to Ireland. Um, being too late to take part in that, he was made third in command of Amiral uh, Bouet's fleet um, and his, his, his actions at um, Aboukir, which is uh, what the French call the Battle of the Nile, were controversial as he was blamed for his lack of support to the main squadron when Nelson attacked, but uh, he extricated two ships of the line and two frigates and sailed to Malta, uh, where he became a prisoner of war at the cap capitulation in 1800. Um, after that, Villeneuve um, skipped around a few commands. In 1804, he was created vice-amiral and uh, appointed commander of the Toulon fleet. Uh, and he raised his flag on La Boucantère late in the year and put to sea, hoping to lift the blockade of Brest and sailed to the channel to allow passage of Le Grand Armée. Um, he dotted around the Atlantic, dodging British fleets, joined forces with uh, Admiral Gravina of the Spanish Navy at Cadiz, and, um, but could not break through into the channel. You have this uh, action at, uh, I believe it's Cap Finisterre against Calder, which is inconclusive in the fog. Uh, nobody's very happy about it. Napoleon's furious that uh, Villeneuve hasn't got through and everybody in Britain is saying, oh, Calder, you, you, you dope. How, how, how could you not have crushed them? And I think that uh, there's even, even Wellington had heard about the action at Finisterre um, and talked to Nelson about it in that one meeting they had. Uh, he's saying it, it just won't do, you know, we, you, you uh, Lord Nelson, have, have brought us to, to uh, expect more. Um, and that sets up the Trafalgar campaign. Um, Villeneuve is, is essentially being asked by Napoleon to break through within the year. Uh, and he's facing legitimate disgrace at the time of 1805. Uh, dismissal uh, probably is on the cards uh, for failure to, to get the fleet to the channel, La Manche. And um, obviously Trafalgar happens as a result of the, of the attempt to, to do that. Um, the confusion around the massive maneuvers of the Atlantic chase and things like that aside, if you boil it down, what happens is Nelson manages to get ahead of the, of the French. The French end up coming back into, the French end up therefore sort of running into him in a disadvantaged, in a disadvantaged position off Cape Trafalgar. And um, Nelson has the weather gauge in this, in, in this instance as a result of the unfavorable uh, maneuverings. And Villeneuve accepts a battle. I don't know precisely the like, technicalities as to whether or not he could have just turned all the ships around and run for it. He probably could have, because it took the, the British about an hour and 40 minutes to actually get into 
the point where they could fire their guns. But he decided to fight. And, um, well, you know, we know what happened there. Uh, so I'm going to say, I think it's unfair to criticize Villeneuve's commander Trafalgar too harshly, um, except to say that he undoubtedly did not manage it very well. Uh, he had the disadvantage, obviously, of losing the weather gauge, dis and despite seeing Nelson's columns coming at him, he did not really try to organize an efficient counter strategy that would allow his vanguard, especially, to enter the battle, er battle earlier or at all, as it turned out. But we'll get into that with uh, going on to a different guy uh, later on with a different uh, individual. So we'll come on to the whole thing with um, why things don't work out at Trafalgar, but I just wanted to chip in here and talk about the Nile for a mm -hmm. moment. Uh, again, talking to John, he was talking about how Villeneuve was essentially haunted by what he saw. And uh, mm. given the story of what happens at the Nile, I wouldn't blame him for being haunted by what happened at the Nile. But there is kind of that sense of cutting and running, isn't there? Mm -hmm. Um, sort of, so if I have this correctly, they cut their anchors and they just leg it. So there's no effort to mm. assist the remainder of the French fleet. It's just we're getting out of dodge. Is that an accurate representation of it? I, I, th I think it, 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 in simplistic terms, I think that is essentially what happened. The, and it all comes down to that kind of discussion that is quite common in military history about, you know, if a portion of the army extricates itself from a disaster, is it doing the sensible thing or could it have somehow um, changed the course of the battle in some way? To be honest, at the Nile, I really don't think that Villeneuve's um, squadron or what was left of it that escaped really could have done much except get more ships lost um and certainly that seems to be the call he made uh at the time and uh, it must have been a, a, an immensely difficult decision to make given the the fact it was dark there was massive confusion there was no way signals could have been being passed and it was probably the sensible thing to do, bearing in mind as well that during the uh, French Revolutionary Wars, French, the French strategy and tactical sort of doctrine when it came to fighting was to try and avoid it, generally speaking. And of course the Directory and the government would have really liked them to have taken on the Royal Navy toe-to-toe -to -toe, like they did in the American Revolution and give them a bruising or a beating. But the Navy, who understood actual sort of the actual state of the fleets, realized that we're not really going to be able to pull that off unless it's a good extraordinary circumstance. So we should try and avoid it, try and conserve our ships and um, and try and just attack their commerce and things like that. So it's it's not unusual for French admirals and French commanders to try and preserve portions of the fleet, put it this way, especially if they think that all is lost and there's nothing that can be done. Okay, fair enough, which actually leads us quite neatly to the next individual that we're going to talk about in a way, um, which is Pierre-Etienne René-Marie Dumanois-Le Pellet. Apologies 
for the horrific pronunciation, um, which supporters of this podcast do tend to lambast me for, and justifiably so. So this is another Trafalgar boy, right? This is the commander of the van. Yeah. But there's a lot of tension between Dumanoir and Villeneuve, isn't there? Because if I have this right, Dumanoir is Villeneuve's second in command. As you say, Villeneuve is on the point of being replaced at the point at which he sets sail for what becomes the, the Battle of Trafalgar, not intending to fight that battle, but willing to head into the Med. So Dumanoir kind of has this feeling, well, you know, this should be my command, get lost. Um, and the van, at the French van at Trafalgar, or Franco-Spanish van at Trafalgar, ends up initially trying to get out of Dodge and then doubles back and sort of tries to get involved, but by that point it's way too late. So to what extent is Dumanoir at Trafalgar doing a Villeneuve at the Nile? And, and okay, so let's start with that. You know, let's, let's discuss that first of all. Uh, this is a, this is obviously a very valid thing to raise because it is very similar uh, at face value. So, bearing in mind the strange relationship we might, you know, one expects to have between those two officers, because even if Napoleon replaces Villeneuve with someone from France or from the Ministry of the Marine, uh, for a while Dumanoir would be in charge even if the Spanish say, well, we're just going home. You'll still be in charge of the French. Um, that aside, Dumanoir had to face charges when he got back after being taken prisoner at a different battle. He didn't get captured at Trafalgar, um, which kind of moots his, his sort of saving of the vanguard. But nevertheless, um, he had to face charges for his conduct, he had to defend himself. Villeneuve and Lucas and all the people, you know, his colleagues who felt left hung out to dry all had very, you know, waspish things to say about him. And he made the argument that, first of all, no signal was given to contravene his initial orders until the British fleet was well engaged. Now that brings up its own hell because that asks us, well, where is your sense of um, initiative then, man? Couldn't you see them? Couldn't you see the, this endless line of British ships piling into the center there? You know, where's your instincts? You're an you're experienced officer. But he said there was no, nothing to contravene the first order, which was to sail ahead until middle of the battle. And in the middle of the battle, the smoke was too much to see Villeneuve signals. So here we could say that Villeneuve, this goes back to Villeneuve not handling things terribly well, not anticipating the strike from the British ships well enough in advance for him to, uh, to make signals when everything was clear and tell Dumanoir, get the ships moving this way now, um, which he didn't, obviously didn't do until it was much too late. Dumanoir, it's impossible really to tell when he saw that signal. Um, when he did see the signal, there seems to have been a half-hearted attempt to turn the ships back, but the wind was against him, and, or at least unfavorable to him, and he couldn't get back really into the battle. A handful of ships did manage to, they helped out Admiral Gravina's squadron get clear. I believe 
harsh words were said by uh, what, at least one of the captains under his command who just said, I'm going in without you, right? And I think some of his ships did actually just go and enter the fight because they were disgusted with his lack of fighting spirit. But, but I mean, yeah, but is it, is it like Villeneuve at Trafalgar? Could he have actually intervened? At the point where it's logical that he could have intervened, i.e. past afternoon, fleets are well engaged, at least an hour into the battle was when he actually started to turn around or something like that. It's unlikely he could have done a lot to rescue a victory out of the jaws of defeat. I think it's more a question of he probably could have been able to rescue some of the ships and help them escape. The fact that he didn't or wasn't able to could be down to his interpretation of the orders, his dislike of Villeneuve, um, could be a massive amount of things. I don't think it's as simple as Villeneuve at the Nile, Aboukir, uh, saying that all is lost. I do not know what's happening. We have to get out. Here, he could actively have got into the fight if he'd wanted to, or at least have put himself in position. Um, I don't think it's as simple, but there are mitigating circumstances, as he said. The wind was against him. He was in a bad position. He did not receive a direct order to enter the fight until about an hour into the battle or so. It's, 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 it's quite a big con controversy in, in French maritime history of the Napoleonic Wars as to whether how much blame he deserves for, for his actions at Trafalgar and indeed at the time. Okay, so let's just rewind to finish the Villeneuve story and then we'll, we'll look at Dumanoir more fully um, and perhaps mm -hmm. rehabilitate uh, some of his reputation in the process. Um, so Villeneuve, obviously Trafalgar, it's, he, he's on the cusp of being replaced mm -hmm. anyway, more on that in the episode on the 21st of October. What happens post Trafalgar? You know, is, is there a court martial for this? You know, you were about to be replaced, Mush, and you went out and then you lost mm -hmm. the French Mediterranean fleet and the, a huge chunk of the Spanish Mediterranean fleet. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> are there consequences for that? Well, there would have been, certainly. It was actually uh, the law um, and certainly in regulations that if you lost a single ship, that captain would come before, uh, would, would face charges to explain why he lost that ship. Uh, so when you lose that many ships as an admiral, you're absolutely going to get uh, an inquiry into what happened. And this is where some of the recriminations would occur, where he immediately starts saying, it's Dumanoir's fault, I did my best sort of thing. However, Villeneuve being made the scapegoat for French military, uh, for French naval disaster, as probably would have happened since Napoleon wasn't a fan of him in the first place, was avoided by the fact that when he returned to France, uh, I think it was in 1806, um, he wound up being found, I believe, in Rennes, uh, stabbed six times in the chest, which the, um, which the government said was suicide. Sorry, he's meant to have stabbed himself six times in the chest. Yes, yes. He was found one morning in his room, 
stabbed six times and uh, they put it down to suicide that he could not face the inevitable disgrace of, uh, of, the, the, court, of the court of inquiry and killed himself by stabbing himself six times in the chest. I see. Uh, um, as a result, perhaps, of his, his heroic and noble sacrifice and taking responsibility for this defeat, his name is on the Arc de Triomphe. Um, Villeneuve's <laughs> name is on the Arc de Triomphe. I, that is my understanding, yes. Yes, each side of the Arc de Triomphe, his name appears, yes. For Triumph where well, because clearly not triumph at trafalgar and clearly not triumph is, at the nile this is a, yes exactly this is a very interesting thing i mean he was a very experienced sailor um and he did fight very bravely at at trafalgar um, oh, no question even if, yeah even, even if he didn't uh, particularly do anything brilliant to stave off defeat um uh, he uh, and and collingwood described him and i quote as a well-bred man and i believe a very good officer he has nothing in his manner of the offensive vaporing and boasting, which we perhaps too often attribute to Frenchmen. Uh, that's that's very that's very noble comic with there, uh, and a lesson to us all. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't know why precisely his name was put on the Arc de Triomphe because he didn't because although he was a very capable officer and one of the most senior in the uh, in the navy and had risen through the ranks very fast uh, he didn't you couldn't say that he did anything massively spectacular except preside over this this disastrous event um, but it could be the fact that he was such a senior officer and as a, as a fob to the navy there are there are quite a few admirals on the Arc de Triomphe actually Interesting. Okay, let's. So, having kind of covered Villeneuve, let's move back to Dumanoir. So, we've got the whole situation with the, the command of the van, but let's not make the guy's career just about that one afternoon. What else has he done before this point? Where does he come from? And then, what's his career like post Trafalgar? Okay, so, um, Monsieur, I should say, Comte. Pierre-Etienne René Marie de Menoir de Calais, uh, for short, was born uh, in uh, Granville in northern France to a good family. He was actually the son of a privateer, uh, so good sea seafaring routes there. Uh, he entered the Navy, Navy in 1787. Uh, he was uh, on various vessels uh, in the Caribbean and on the African coast. Uh, becoming Ensign de Vasseur in 1791, Lieutenant in 93, and in 1795 he was appointed to the staff of Amriel Pierre Martin and made Capitaine de Vasseur. Uh, by the way, Admiral Martin is a very interesting character in himself. Um, he was born in Canada and rose to a high rank and, op and opposed um, Admiral Hotham in 1795. But anyway, uh, this campaign under Martin was undertaken in the Mediterranean. He also did cruises in Newfoundland where he attacked, where he raided British shipping and stuff like that. Humanois was very well connected uh, in the Navy due to his, to his father and being a cousin of the, uh, of Amiral Georges René Le Pelle de Plaville, who uh, disagreed 
with Napoleon's Egyptian campaign on grounds that the Navy could not ensure the safety of the army and indeed the fleet, which is why he got sidelined, uh, even though he was proved absolutely correct. <laughs> but he, this, is a, this is a good connection to have. Um, and so he served, after serving in both the Irish and Egyptian campaigns and actually being one of the guys who escorted Napoleon back to France from Egypt. Oh dear. Um, he was made contra-admiral uh, in 1799. He definitely showed capability in his commands from here on, and he served under Charles-Alexandre-Léon Durand-Dillinois, the only French naval commander of the Constellation Empire to win a battle against the British on, uh, in open terms, um, and we'll get to him later. Uh, and then after that, he was moved to um, Villeneuve's command, in charge of the vanguard. So what, it's interesting that apart from his performance at Trafalgar, he's actually got a very good record and is actually a natural choice to succeed in there, uh, to be honest, because he's well-connected and he's very experienced. Napoleon did have a few pet admirals though. So it's, it would have been interesting to see, I don't know precisely who Napoleon had in mind to replace Villeneuve. Maybe it was one of his pet admirals, I don't know. But um, Dumanois could have been in the running. And, uh, and uh, up to this point, there's not really anything in his career that suggests he doesn't like fighting or doesn't know how to run a fleet. Okay, so Dumanois, you know, kind of has a bad day at the office, if you will, arguably, uh, when it comes to Trafalgar. Now, somebody whose reputation doesn't suffer at Trafalgar though he does sadly end up being killed, so he doesn't do well out of the battle, is Charles-René Magon de Medine, right? Tell us about him. Uh, yes, yes. Um, Charles-René Magon um, was born in Paris, actually, in 1763, so not really anywhere near the sea. But he joined the Marines in 1777. A lot of these guys entered through the Marines. Um, and made Lieutenant of Vassar in 1786 after much active service, going to serve in the East, and uh, where he was arrested at Ile de France in 1793, I think probably due to the uh, revolution, uh, due to the outbreak of the revolution. And like I say, a lot of officers found themselves briefly arrested and then um, restored to rank. Well, let me just interrupt for a second there, because I, as we were going through this list of who we were going to pick, I did notice there's a lot of nobility there in this list you know these are all kind of the the english equivalent would be kind of double barreled names wouldn't it mm. um you know the, these are aristocrats who somehow managed to keep their head don't do what some of the aristocracy in the french army do which is join other nations so how does that happen why is it that these members of the nobility a stay in employment um, of the directory in, initially and, and then subsequently the empire um, but also how is it that they escape the the guillotine well that's a really good question um, and one that is probably much more com much more complicated than than one I can actually probably speak to uh, I did talk to a uh, French historian a uh, French naval historian uh, Olivier Aranda about this very subject and he had some very interesting things to say about actually how many nobles actually left who were like uh, navy captains and who, how many of them stayed and 
I don't know whether it was the case that the directory did understand that whereas you do not necessarily need to know everything about running an army to be a general. You cannot just be so flagrant about getting rid of captains and men of experience at sea because it's a totally different thing. Now, I get the impression that I, from what I've seen from the, the, the names that I looked at for this list, there is a sort of a commonality in terms of anybody who was of noble blood, who, was, uh, who had entered the Navy in the 1770s, we'll say, um, and was, say, a captain, would almost routinely be arrested and dismissed. And then two or three years later, maybe one year later, depending on who you knew, would be reinstated. Whereas those who, say, volunteered and became captains and lieutenants in 1788, when the Royalists, uh, when reforms came into the French Royal Navy, allowing people of non-noble birth to become officers, they would not be arrested necessarily. They would just continue on. Or if you had been on a cruise on the other side of the world and came back, you might not get arrested as well. So there's definitely it's definitely not just to do with, oh, you can't be trusted. I think what happens is in the rev when the revolution breaks out and everything gets in, goes into upheaval, they have to be assured that these people are not going to run away with the ships. And so there's a clearing process almost that happens after 1793, where they remove officers, see what their political, see whether they're at least politically ambiguous enough to say, I can be a Republican, I can serve in the Republican Navy sort of thing, um, and see whether they go from there. Because like you say, most of the senior officers at the beginning of the revolution were certainly of noble blood because so many, so much of the French Royal Navy was run by noble officers. So, I mean, if you just get rid of all of the officers, I think it's a myth that they just got rid of all of the officers for a start. Okay, fair enough. Um, thank you for that. And apologies for interrupting you on what was uh, an exposition on uh, Medine. Carry on. Well, it's something we have to something we have to raise, I think, definitely, uh, and I'm sure others can do it better than I do. Do please look up uh, uh, Olivier because he'll he'll be able to answer your questions much more, but much better than I will. Not least um, on your Land of History YouTube channel. Yes, Not indeed. You there, because you, you uh, interviewed him a little while back. But uh, yeah, yes. apologies. Back to look out, uh, look out for that video. Yes, so um, he was arrested though, at Ile de France in 1793. He was then acquitted and became aide-de-camp to the governor, and he became captain de Vasso in 1795 and commanded a frigate, saw more action off Sumatra the next year. On his return to France, he beat off some British ships trying to harry his convoy, and his services in the, uh, in the French Southeast Asia saw him presented with a set of ceremonial armor um, by the French uh, company of the Philippines. Though some of his activities apparently on the Ile de France had displeased the directory, I'm again not quite sure what that was. He was confirmed in his post by Admiral Brice, and in 1802 he became contra-admiral after impressing General Leclerc and uh, its Santo Domingo, or Saint Dominique as the French call it. Uh, Magon was um, involved in the abortive operation to invade Britain in 1804. 
who played a part in warding off the British attempts to get at the flotilla barges and commanded the rear guard at the Battle of Finisterre. At the Battle of Trafalgar, he was 42 years old and he had been present at 12 naval actions. And his rear guard squadron exchanged blows with Collingwood's squadron. In the afternoon of the battle, his ship Algeciras, a 74 gunner, came alongside HMS Tonnant, 80 guns. The British ship fouled on the San Juan Nepomuceno and allowed the French to rake the decks with musketry, while the British gave it back to her from her starboard battery of guns. Uh, Magon, and by the way, I, I'm very aware that I might be using a hard G here where I should be saying Majon. I'm very sorry if I'm doing that because I think it's probably Majon. Um, he felt that he could board it and take the British ship. And he started to lead his men over the side. But the British sprayed this boarding party with grape from the forecastle guns. And um, Majon Magon was hit uh, in his right arm and head and his wig flew off. But though bruised and bloody, he refused to be taken below to see the surgeon. And waving his sword, he called his men not to give up. And he was again then hit in the shoulder by a musket ball. And still, this incredibly brave idiot staggered forwards, gathering his men behind him, still upright and still determined. He was then basically cut in half by a cannonball. And when that happened, his surviving men were hit by musketry by, from the Marines on board the British ship and cannonballs going through the French ship, knocked its masts down and the crew surrendered. And his name appears on the south side of the Arc de Triomphe. And he is remembered as one of the tragic and heroic French heroes of, uh, of Trafalgar. I think basically dying well will get you on the Arc de Triomphe in this case. Um, that's yes, quite a way to but, go. But not what happened to Villeneuve. But as you say, you know, there's a name that you can you can understand why he's on the Arc de Triomphe. My word, what, a, what an end to a career. Um, and staggering heroism which just goes to show you know the the, the bravery of the yeah. the French um which I think is perhaps sometimes something that we tend to downplay particularly when we talk about how morale was better on the British side actually it doesn't mean yeah. that the French were in any way lacking in courage it's simply no. uh, a fact of the fact that the British had this kind of string of successes to draw upon oh. I, I think that it's like that it takes immense courage to be a commander or a, or a sailor in, in the in this time. I mean, you know, when when they took when they took um, Villeneuve's ship, all of his officers were gone practically. The, the the marine the Royal Marine officer who took his sword described the decks of his ship as being it's just awful. He said that one cannonball, a raking shot from from one of the ships, went through the hull of the French ship La Boucantère and went straight down skimming off the off the beams and killed like killed and maimed 40 men in one shot there's nowhere to escape on these things this is these are floating coffins essentially when they come into action they're massive artillery platforms that are just they make land battles look tame <laughs> they really it's do. Terrific. I mean, I was having sort of this discussion with John for the Trafalgar podcast. Apologies for 
endlessly kind mm. of publicizing this for, for folks but just the the, the the sheer weight of shot so a, a large gun uh, a siege gun it's worth saying in on in the army is an 18 pounder mm. now the french and the british uh, are stocking 18 24 36 pounders mm. and and not just one or two of them you know we're talking <laughs> decks of these things victory is what 100 yeah. guns give or like take 105 105 and their friendships like lorient at the nile was 120 guns i mean it's hard to see trinidad she's yeah. four decks 100, yeah 150 or something like that something ridiculous like that millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. This is the biggest artillery duels in history up to World War One. Seriously, you will this the, the noise must have just have been. I don't know how people recovered their hearing for a start. And like I say, the carnage when those broadsides hit wood <laughs> um, yeah. is terrible. It, it absolutely is. Um, another individual we have to talk about in the sort of Trafalgar Quartet, although this guy doesn't actually kind of make it to Trafalgar is Etienne Eustache Bruy. Again, apologies, pronunciation. This guy's French naval minister, heavily involved in the plans for the invasion of Britain, but he dies before, you know, he's involved in putting together those plans, but he dies in March 1805. So before Trafalgar, before, you know, kind of everyone's gone, okay, the game's up, let's move on with other ideas. Mm -hmm. Yes, he's a very important guy, and he's actually one of, um, I think he would be classed as one of Napoleon's sort of pet admirals. Napoleon was quite fond of, uh, of Brie. Um, he was born in uh, 1759 in, uh, in Saint-Dominique, uh, so he was a Creole officer uh, from, from, from Josephine's neck of the woods. So was, was he mixed race? No, uh, Creole refers to uh, someone who is of European blood born in the colony. Okay. Mm -hmm. It means something different now, but back then, Josephine... Okay, okay that explains my confusion. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've always wondered that about Josephine, mm -hmm. and you've just cleared up something that, frankly, uh, yeah. is embarrassing, and I should have known, and we should probably edit out of the podcast, but in the sake... For the it's, sake it's of, your podcast. <laughs> for the sake of demonstrating my ignorance, we're going to leave it in, um, because, sure. look, every day's a learning day, folks. Um, sorry, but carry on. Yeah, he uh, so he was from the Caribbean, of the of the of the French colonies of the Caribbean, and he was the son of a captain in the army. Joined the navy in seventeen seventy eight. Um, I think he actually joined um, at a fairly low rank, 
And by, because by 1783, he was a corporal in the Marines, having seen extensive service in the Caribbean. So we're talking like this very grassroots guy here. Um, in 1790, he was a Lieutenant de Vasseau, first class, and he attended the Academy de Marine for taking command of a brig in 1791, sailing in uh, the Indian Ocean. Uh, in January of 93, he was Captain de Vasseau, second class. And in also in 93, he was deposed by the people's representatives of Brest, which shows that you didn't, just because you weren't of noble blood, didn't mean you couldn't be suspected of possibly going to nip off to the Austrians or the Russians with one of the Republic's ships. Um, he, and like I said, I think this is really, to be honest, it's not maybe necessarily like a, a, an evidence of the repressiveness of the regime or something. This is literally national defense. These ships are technologically very intricate things that are very expensive, cannot mess around with who is commanding them. Um, so anyway, he gets, he gets reinstated by the representatives as a captain de Vasseau first class, so he gets a little promotion. Um, and then immediately given the role of um, major general, which I think is actually major general, which is a staff position, which is confusingly apparent in French Navy circles. You can have major generals of the Marine um, at Brest. He continued in a staff capacity during the Irish expedition of 1796, and he became a contra admiral in Admiral in 1797. His skills of a, as an administrator were obviously quite remarkable as he moved on to be named, as you say, Minister of Marine uh, and the Colonies by Lazare Hoche in 1798. And he filled that role until uh, 17, uh, well, he, he, yeah, he continued in that role. He was created Vice-Admiral at Brest. Now in 1799, he actually goes back to sea and he embarks on a massive campaign celebrated as the Croisière de Breu, where he sets out with the largest fleet the Republic has, ostensibly to rescue the army in Egypt, but ends up fainting towards Ireland, going to Cadiz, leading Lord Keith and Mary Dance, winding up out in Cartagena, before returning safely again to Brest. And... Yep. So, uh, forgive me, but you said the plan was to rescue the... French army. Yeah, he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't make it there. <laughs> he didn't make it there. The British were in the way. So he had to divert out. Um, and so he basically... set sail with the largest navy yeah. that the French Republic can muster. This is the thing. This is the thing. This is, this is the thing with the French strategy in the, in the Revolutionary War. The Directory wants them to, to get rid of the threat of the Royal Navy. The sailors say we can't do that stop asking us to do it because and this is and you know it's in the, it's in it's in the song hearts of oak you know uh we always see the french uh but they won't stay that that bit isn't it um we, we wish them to stay but uh, and they wish us away and things like that but uh, and that is exactly what the french wanted we do, it is the petit it is the petit guerre de la mer it's guerrilla warfare at sea. That's what they want to do. They don't want to fight the British, the Navy, British fleets. They want to get around them. They want to use up their resources. They want to attack convoys. They want to attack ports. They want to try and, if they can, ferry armies here and there. And that's how they will, that's how they will wear the British down. And they were actually doing a fairly good job of it as well, to be honest, except when 
generals like Napoleon asked them to go and stick their necks out now and care off, off Egypt. But um, the, uh, yeah, he goes on this massive, and, and yes, it, it's, it's proper to be dubious about the celebration of this cruise because it is a, it is a sequence of failures which by his, but because he is a very good sailor and quite a good strategist, he evades being caught by the British and destroyed. And so he arrives back with all of his ships, having done this um, very impressive feat of seamanship. Um, he, uh, he returns back and, and this, is, this is actually quite a celebrated campaign, but obviously it's kind of a nothing campaign at the same time. Is he just a bit like Napoleon in being really, really good at propaganda and getting that version out there? Or is this even the directory kind of wanting to go, hey, look, we put a fleet to sea and the British didn't manage to destroy it. Success. Yeah. Is, I mean, I'm being facetious, obviously, but is that kind of what's going on here? A little, a little, yeah. I mean, the, the British were deeply concerned about about what he was doing and where he was. And they were really quite frustrated that they couldn't actually track him down. And to be honest, when a fleet that size goes out and it causes some havoc amongst merchants and things like that, and it causes the British to extend their resources and chase them around and get be distracted by stuff, that is a kind of a win for the Republic. But um, it's, not a, it's not a big publicity win. So I guess they talked it up a little. Okay, the other thing I wanted to pick up on, um, French naval minister pre-Napoleon's yeah. coup, mm -hmm. how does he manage to get the position again post-coup? Granted, okay, he puts to sea, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. in 99, as you say. But how does that happen? What is it that makes Napoleon trust this guy? Well, because he was in on it. As simple as that. Yeah, Brew knew about the about the coup. He was involved. He was implicated in it. Um, so he was kind of on. He was kind of on Napoleon's side, and he was Napoleon's first choice as the commander of the British invasion fleet. And he was made, you know, council of, councillor of state and full admiral, inspector of the ocean coasts. This is Napoleon trying to garner some patronage amongst the the navy. Basically, this is he wants Brew to be his guy. And to be honest, if he hadn't died. Of tuberculosis, aged forty-five, um, he might have been the guy in command at Trafalgar. Um, he was certainly one of France's most capable commanders, and his name again is on the Arc de Triomphe. Yeah, as you say, Napoleon's man through and through, one of his his men, uh, oh. if you will. Okay, so we've we've looked at some failures. Let's let's pause for a moment to consider a, a significant success story, or at least the most significant. Now tell me I've read this right. Charles Alexandre Leon Durand de Linois was the only French sailor to win against the British during the consulate and empire era. Is that for real? He's the only one who manages it? This is the epithet I have read of him uh, in a few places. It does seem extraordinary. I believe that you have to narrow the parameters of the of of the of the category a little to get that. But of the Constitution Empire, he's the only admiral to defeat a British squadron in battle. It's not uh, it's not accurate to say that in single ship actions, 
French ships didn't take British ships. Okay. But in terms okay. of That's an what you might call yeah. okay. larger uh, actions or more strategic actions and things like that, that the yeah, but he's the only one to actually go to battle with multiple ships and win. That's still pretty remarkable. Okay, tell us about said engagement uh, and mm. then kind of his role within it and more of his life. Right, well, um, uh, Amiral Didinois uh, was born in Finisterre in 1761. He joined the Navy in 76, served under a chap called Amiral D'Orvilliers in the American Revolution rose through the ranks in the 1780s, um, serving in multiple commands. Seems to be a very capable chap, served under um, a famous admiral called Villaret Joyeuse as a Capitaine de Verso, and he lost an eye in, the, in a combat uh, off of Groix. I'm not quite sure where that is, but he lost an eye there. And he was, and by this time he, and he was captured twice by the British and each time he was um, exchanged within the year. Uh, he also took part in, like many of the chaps we've been talking about, he took part in uh, various operations uh, towards Ireland. And he then, he was also made commandant of, of some ports. His, he was then, uh, at the turn of the century, he was moved to the Mediterranean because he had been based uh, uh, on the Atlantic coast. And in July of 1801, he engaged a British force in the harbour of Algeciras. And to the delight of everybody in France, he ended the day with one more ship than he began it with. Um, and uh, that meant he raised the tricolour over the deck of HMS Hannibal. Well, HMS Hannibal, sorry, I went very French there for some reason. Um, and uh, this is his battle, the, the, the first battle of... Uh, of Algeris, uh, Algerisas, I think, <laughs> just forgotten how to say it right off the bat. But that was his battle, this battle here, the first battle of Algerisas. And he took a British ship in it, and for this he was given a ceremonial sword. The success is slightly marred because a week later he lost a battle in exactly the same place. But um, that is, that is his, his record there. And does, he um, does sorry, he end on. up on the Arc de Triomphe? Does he end up on the Arc de Triomphe? He does end up on the Arc de Triomphe. His name is okay. carved on the west pillar of the Arc de Triomphe. Um, he then afterwards went out to the the Indian Ocean and caused havoc there amongst British uh, East India Company merchant fleets, and always evading the war fleets that tried to track him down. And he um, was on his way back in 1806 to France when he was, kept, when he was caught um, off Cape Verde um, by a British squadron and captured for the third and last time, having been wounded in the leg. They did not give him back to France this time. Interesting. Was, there, was that a kind of a conscious decision because, you know, he, he's the guy who handed it to us um, and he's the only one who to have done it so far was that part of the decision making or did nobody want him back i don't know it's 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 a good question i would love to get to the bottom of it i know that at some point napoleon did stop exchanging prisoners so it could have been a tit for tat thing um, or it could have been just that they were a little worried that this was a commander they was a little bit too risky to leave alone and 
you know, give, give back to the French. So he only came back to France in 1814 or something like that. And the Bourbons were quite generous to him. He, they gave him um, uh, a, few, a few titles, I think, and they made him governor of Guadeloupe. Um, and when Napo but when Napoleon um, comes back in 1815, he actually goes back to Napoleon and he, he declares for Napoleon, which is probably unwise given the stretch of time it takes to get news back and forth across the Atlantic. And so by the time, um, well, basically it's all over by the time he can get around to doing anything. And he has to surrender Guadeloupe and um, he has to face charges for treason. He does get away with it. Nobody, nobody executes him. The royalists seem to have been, have no interest in having his head. But he does resign from the navy in 1816. So, <laughs> yeah, you can kind of get a hint that there was a, a discussion that went on there, can't you? Mm -hmm. You want to stay alive? Well, you ain't going to serve anymore. Um, yeah, such was the way with some of these things. All right then, uh, let's let's keep the momentum going. So, Francois Paul Rouet de Gallier. Uh, I'm, I'm not even going to keep apologizing for the pronunciation we're, we're, we're way past that point this guy he commands at the nile and oh, dies yes. in the process is is this the guy on the burning deck yes this is the guy on the burning deck with the boy who refuses to to leave his relative's side well that's not a, that's a good question i'm not quite sure if he is that guy on the burning deck but he is on the burning deck, that is for certain. I don't know. Okay. Least, I don't know who would be able to confirm that because so many people died true. on this ship. <laughs> so, this is true. Um, uh, yeah, Bray de Dargalier. It is a difficult name for an English uh, mouth to get around. But um, in 1753, he's born to an aristocratic family in Uzès. And he joined the Royal Navy as a volunteer in 1766. So he's one of the earliest guys we have here. Um, he extensive service in the 1770s as a Marine officer in the Mediterranean. In 1780, like a lot of people, he transfers from the Marines, becomes Lieutenant de Vasseur. So actions in all, uh, so action in all the battles during the American Revolution under the Comte de Grasse uh, in the Chesapeake. In 92, he was made Commandant de Vasseur and went on expeditions under Admiral Trouvé, uh, who is a, again a very famous French admiral who became notable for a lot of lot of um, creditable actions during the Second Empire, um, and he was just getting somewhere basically when the revolution put the brakes on his career. Again, similar story to other other guys. He was detained and arrested on orders of the convention. He actually resigned and was then you know dismissed. Uh, only to be recalled in 1795 and made commander of the Adriatic Division and then Contra Admiral in 1796, Vice Admiral and uh, Commandant en Chef de l'Armée Navale de la Méditerranean. It's, uh, I like the fact that, um, that if you become commander of naval forces, then they called it um, Armée Navale, <laughs> the Naval Army. Um, that's in 1798. And in this capacity, he successfully supplied Bonaparte in Italy by sea. And as a result, Napoleon asked for Bray to um, ferry him to Egypt. Um, now, obviously, some, had some sort of high ups in the French Navy said, please don't ask us to 
I sort of just present ourselves as targets to the British when we do not command the sea. This is impossibly stupid to launch an amphibious operation when we cannot secure either the fleet or the army. When Napoleon was, was in with the directory, the Navy was not, and he got his way. And on, on the 5th of May, 1798, Bray raised his flag on Lorient and a 120 gun ship of the line. In accordance with General Bonaparte's plan, he assisted in the capture of Malta and then conveyed the Armée d'Orient to the mouth of the Nile where he was instructed to either return to France by Napoleon or enter the harbor of Alexandria. This presented Bray with a problem because he had given all his supplies to the army. He couldn't get the fleet into, he didn't like, he didn't like the harbor of Alexandria because he thought it was too shallow. And he didn't really want to get the fleet trapped inside an Egyptian port either because he had managed to evade Nelson who was dallying around in Naples or something like that. Um, but he had no, I don't think he was stupid enough to think that they wouldn't eventually figure out where he was. He decided that he had to therefore stay in the mouth of the Nile de Abukir um, until he could get more supplies. And he wrote back to the Ministry of Marine in July saying that we are awaiting the conquest of Egypt so we can get supplies so we can get out of here basically. And at the same time he was complaining that he had 15 days of biscuit left for the fleet. This is about, I I, at my count, this is 19 days away from the 1st of August when the first British ships come in sight. And he also says that the crews are deficient, they're low morale, the rigging is rotten, and everything is going to hell, pretty much, <laughs> sitting at Abukir. And as he's sitting at Abukir, up rolls Nelson. And so the worst has happened, they've found it. And um, at first they think, okay, well, we'll just anchor here. We're pretty safe. There's no way they're gonna get us this close to shore. Unfortunately, it's Nelson. And Nelson says, well, actually we can, we'll just do it at night. And we'll just just we'll, we'll just go over these shoals, and we'll just get around them to where you know to the to, to so we can use their blind sides against them, which is absolutely insane, but it, it it works. And there are some guys in the French fleet who say we should just try and get out of here. I believe a second in command um, uh, says to Brie or suggests to Brie that we should try and escape, and Brie sort of. I was either just gotten fatalistic or thinks that he can hold his position or something because he orders the, the hammocks to be taken down and prepared for action. Um, so he's expecting a fight at some point, but nobody expects it to happen so late in the day um, so that the battle basically occurs in the dark. And I mean, talking about, you know, brave last stands, uh, such as uh, Magon at, at Trafalgar, Bruy also has a very brave end to him. <laughs> um, and unlike, unlike Villeneuve at Trafalgar, I'm not really sure there's much he could have done once the battle started to have altered anything, really. Um, his personal ship, Lorient, um, came up against the Bellerophon, the Billy Ruffian, 
one of the most famous British ships in the in the Royal Navy, and it pounded pounded the life out of it. Actually, this is a hundred and twenty gunner, and a Bellerophon does not have that many guns, and they were they were merrily hitting it from basically they were, they were going to sink it. I think Bellerophon lost most of its masts and a lot of its officers during this fight, but. Um, because the French ships couldn't support each other and the British ships could, more British ships rallied round and soon L'Orient was surrounded and you know, the French fleet was taken out piecemeal and Rui was on his quarter deck and he, uh, or the Banque de Cartes as the French seem to call it. Uh, and he was wounded several times and then According to British sources, he was mortally hit by a cannonball. Some people say it was almost, some people say it was almost cut in half or something like that, but others say that he lost both his legs. And he had himself strapped to the deck in a chair so that he could keep commanding uh, the fight until he eventually died about an hour before a fire broke out on the Orient and it exploded, killing around 800 uh, uh, men. Uh, who uh, men who were alive at the time and wounded, and therefore accidentally becoming the symbol of a great British victory, uh, and at the same time a, uh, a, a symbol of uh, of the tragic of this tragic event for the French Navy, this dual this dual purpose of of the of the coffin that L'Orient became. Is is the is the sort of the epitaph to Bruy? Yeah, this is the flip side of uh, these ships basically being floating artillery platforms. They are made of wood, and mm. gunpowder plus fire plus wood equals, as you say, some some horrific incidents such as this. And this is not the only ship to to go up um, in mm. in smoke in this way. Um, and it's it's a horrible way for it to end for the crew. Um, now, you wanted also to talk about the, the second in command at the NAR, didn't you? Uh, Count Armand yes. Simon Marie Blanquet Duchela, which mm -hmm. is one hell of a name. Tell us about yeah. this guy. Uh, he, again, is, a, um, is quite an experienced officer. He, he served in the American Revolution because he joined, in the, he joined the Navy in 1759. Uh, he was, I mean, quite a lot of French officers had experience in the, had experience uh, in the French, uh, in the American Revolution, in cruising to take merchantmen, and often most of them had been captured at some point in their lives as well. De Shiler had, had also been captured. Um, he was interesting as well because he had also gone off, um, he had also been uh, given orders in 1786 Serve, uh, to seven frigates hunting pirates off Albania. And then he was a commander and a capitaine de Berceau just before the French Revolution. And again, um, he, he's, 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 a good, he's an interesting guy because instead of being, he seemed, to be, he seemed to be acceptable enough that he wasn't given much trouble during the revolution. There is, a, there is definitely an idea that if you sort of just stay out of trouble in the early 1790s and you're even if you were briefly arrested if you could stay in the navy even if you were an aristocrat you would your your promotion prospects would accelerate quite fast 
that was you know a, a decent thing for for a lot of career officers that they went that they went up the ranks really fast after the revolution uh because by um from from 1793 to 1795 he went from captain to commanding a division the next year uh, again, the next year he was contra admiral, and then he had some high-level administrative appointments, uh, such as deputy minister of the navy, um, and then uh, appointed inspector general of the Mediterranean coast. So the same year, uh, in 1798, he was appointed commander of the second squadron and commander of Bruy's Egyptian fleet. At the Battle of Abukir, he was on record of having suggested to Bruy to um, not engage or to try to escape. But like I say, Bruy seemed to feel that he was safe enough in the position he was in. And the, prob the only problem, he was probably right. The only problem was that he was against Nelson and Nelson was his tactical genius who knew how to get ships into ridiculous positions and get them fighting. So Shiloh uh, commanded his ship, the Franklin, uh, which I, I, I assume is named after Benjamin Franklin. Um, having a portion, uh, he commanded that ship very bravely. Um, he, he had a portion of his nose shot off during the battle, um, but was captured, unlike his commander. And he resigned uh, after the Peace of Amiens, but Napoleon seems to have kept him around and made him a, a, a member of the Légion d'Honneur and um, given a series of similar honors under Napoleon and the Bourbons. But he didn't take really any further active commands after, after, um, after the Peace of Amiens. So he was the second in command at the Nile. Again, I'm knowing what I know about the Nile, I'm not really sure what any French commander could have done to avert it once Nelson put the plan into action. Okay, so another interesting individual. I'm keeping one eye on the time with this and knowing that we've got a couple more to go. And I wish there was kind of a, a crumb of comfort to, to offer um, with, with these, because we have focused a lot on negativity. We, we, we picked out the success where it was there, but mm -hmm. this next guy, he loses his squadron, his, his, his entire squadron at the Battle of San Domingo. This is Corentin Ubain de, sorry, de Lissigu. Mm. Uh, yeah, again, this is, uh, if you just go by the battles, between the British and the French, generally speaking, you are going to get a very one-sided appreciation of, of, the, um, of the war. And uh, it's not, the, but it's not therefore fair to say that the French were just terrible sailors or terrible fighters. I think we can prove, like from the example of guys like Dinois, and also as I've alluded to, there were smaller ship actions where the French did take ships and they were very successful in disrupting uh, merchant convoys and things like that. But obviously it's not as dramatic as ship ba of, of, of battles. Battles are the things that you hang your hat on when you're talking about history. And you have to kind of really have to care about figuring out what the French are trying to do and the constraints that were put upon them during the war to understand why a lot of these battles went so badly for them or um, that they just couldn't, that they just couldn't sort of compete with the Royal Navy anymore. Um, but Urbain de Lesseges um, is another Finisterian. He was born in 1758. 
he volunteered for the Navy and began service aboard a frigate and uh, which was called, which was, which was fancifully called the L'Oiseau, the bird. And um, he was cruising in the channel in 1788. He's, he's, he was quite experienced in Northern waters during his career. He became a contra-admiral in 1793. And after that, he was sent out to the Caribbean where he assumed command over naval forces in the Windward Isles. In 1799, he came back to Europe, undertaking administrative posts uh, in the ports along the Netherlands coast, and then serving in support roles in the Eastern Mediterranean. Now, in 1804, he was freshly appointed a member of the Légion d'Honneur, and he sailed to the Caribbean, and there fought unsuccessful action off um, Santo Domingo in February of 1806, after Trafalgar. Um, and the most that can be said of him was that he managed to save his crew um, from being captured by running his ship aground and getting them all off. But um, yeah, he, he's, he's most known for losing this action um, at Santo Domingo, which was obviously another coup for the British, uh, just finishing off, see, it, which seemed to just sort of finish off, finish off like free movement of French uh, shipping. Uh, French, yeah, French naval forces. Uh, he, he kind of spent the rest of his days during the war anyway, um, uh, in administrative roles in Italy, writing to command the, the forces in the Ionian Sea until, 18, uh, in, uh, until 1814. Um, and he resigned in 1817. So the most can be said of him again was that he, he, he failed to do he, he, he fell into that trap that a lot of French admirals seemed to fall into, where the sensible thing to do is to try to avoid battles, but he ended up being presented with the battle and therefore having to fight it. And generally speaking, when they, when they committed to a battle, the Royal Navy by this point was just too good in fleet actions. It does show that running theme that actually the, the suggestion of the directory is is right and so for all that i've mocked it over the course of this podcast i'm i'm kind of regretting having done that because you know th there is this this kind of repetition of success for the british defeat for the french and as you say perhaps the best thing is you know i've, I've always been a little bit skeptical of this idea that you know that it was impossible to defeat the british at sea well we've established that actually that's that's not the case as we we saw yeah, I mean, in the written um, record, certainly. Yeah, I mean, certainly in the written record, as it, as it played out, it does seem impossible. I think actually within the, the what-if realm, you know, the counterfactual realm, if you look at the components of the French Navy, you look at their history, you look at the materials they're working with, there's no reason why they can't or couldn't have defeated the British, given the right circumstances. But so many problems besetting the French Navy at this point and the biggest problems are essentially not that they're not good as good at fighting in all the battles that the British fight against the French a lot of their ships perform excellently and really pound a lot of like ship for ship some of them really send the British a message to be honest um, so it's nothing really to do with the, the quality of the crews so much, or even the, the ships themselves, or even the commanders. The Royal Navy is just much better funded, it's much better organized, 
and it is much and it has been at sea for much longer. So I think these are the key things to remember when we're talking about the French. It's not inevitable that they couldn't have have managed to gain some ascendancy somewhere, but the British just didn't let them. And obviously problems within the French consulate and empire and Napoleon not caring about the Navy particularly, solely concentrating on land warfare because he didn't trust the Navy after the revolution, misunderstanding completely what the Navy of the revolution was trying to achieve. You have all of these many problems that beset them. So at the same time as it seems impossible for them to get anywhere, they, they, kept, ships in the, they kept ships in the water they kept being a threat even after Trafalgar. So there's, there's not, I think there's definitely more to it. For me, it quite often comes down to a question of drill. You know, the, the British, British crews are just so finely drilled and, and you could yeah. make the argument that in a, in a sense, experience of being at sea and manoeuvres at sea is, is your naval equivalent of, you know, battlefield drill, isn't it, yeah. um, for, for the army. So we've got one last one to uh, discuss, a, a namesake almost for me, Zachary Jacques Theodore Alamont. Am I going to want to adopt Zachary as an ancestor or is this going to be a continuation of unfortunate French failure at sea? Well, I mean, he, he reminds me a little of, he reminds me a little of Dumanoir. Uh, not in the sense that he failed to commit to battle, but that his career up to a certain point does not suggest that he's a bad officer. So you might like him. You might, you might actually want to get on board with this guy. Pardon the pun. <clears throat> I'm just pausing for the hilarity to subside in the audience. Um, yeah, Zachary Jacques Theodore Allemand was born in 1762 in Morbihan the son of a Lieutenant of Asso in the French East India Company. Uh, he entered the Navy in 1774 as a 12-year-old apprentice and served in the East Indies in the China Sea. And he became a sous-Lieutenant de Vasseau after the 1786 Navy reforms and was a full Lieutenant in 1792 and a captain the next year. Um, in 1806, he was made Contre-Admiral um, after some distinguished service, including the capture of some rich convoys in 1805, uh, known as the Allemande Expedi Expedition. And these expeditions are, are, are sort of key points in French naval strategy. These are quite successful things. Lots of the successes you can find in French naval history uh, in the Napoleonic Wars are these long range cruises undertaken by squadrons that just rove around doing damage and making everything a pain for the British. Um, so this successful raiding cruise was intended as a distraction and it netted him the plunder of over 100 merchant vessels and the capture of HMS Calcutta. He evaded three British squadrons during this cruise and this earned him the nickname Escadron Invisible, the invisible squadron. Okay, think, so far so good. Yeah, I think you'll. I think he's someone that you know you would want to sort of, you know, associate yourself. With. I mean, so far he's loaded. He's got a cool name, and he's competent yeah. in his job. Yeah, this is, is good. So, so what goes wrong? Well, I mean, first of all, he's sometimes noted for occasional cruelty. So they just he's, very, he's he's, in a, he's a stern disciplinarian. 
and he was, his rudeness in terms of command, it got him reprimanded a few times by his superiors. Um, and this brilliant feat of seamanship and strategy was, was marred by his somewhat diffident handling of the defense of Basque Roads in 1809, where his main instruction for all commanders when it happened was to act as they saw appropriate. Um, for his part, he began dumping guns off his 120 gun flagship, Ossian, uh, to allow her to get into the nearby river inlet. Um, and the debacle was then blamed on the captains. Scandalously, some were tried, um, which obviously legally had to happen if you lost a ship, and one was executed. Um, Alamand was then moved to the Mediterranean station. And suspiciously, somehow, there was no trial as to his conduct at Basque Roads, despite the fact that some of the captains ended up getting tried and one of them ended up getting executed. Um, so facetious Zach Mode activated. Mm -hmm. um, his, his order is essentially every man for himself. Mm -hmm. He runs away dumping guns off of his ship in order to end up, if you like, up the creek without a paddle <laughs> and manages to retain his command. Come on, Josh, explain this to me. Well, you see, he doesn't, he doesn't maintain the command. He's moved out of command from Basque Roads. He's moved to the Mediterranean station where he doesn't take any further active command. And he's essentially out of the game because he spends the rest of the war brawling and arguing with all sorts of people until he was forcibly retired in 1813. Um, and he could not get further employment with either of the restored governments, and he died in 1826. The idea of the, the weird idea of dumping cannons over the side to lighten the ship so it can get into a river inlet is actually quite sensible because it, he must have felt that the British were going to either burn, because the Basque Roads was rockets and fire ships, if I remember correctly. And so that's a frightening thing. To have to deal with. So in a way, it is a somewhat logical order when everything is confusion and it's a surprise attack to tell every captain, save the ship if you can, do whatever you have to do, because they're stuck inside port essentially, and they're just being attacked. His decision to get his ship to a safe place is sensible from that point of view even though it is, a, is, a dubious, is, a, is of dubious sort of um, merit, being as he is the commander of the, commander of the squadron there. The, I, again, I, to explain that further, if you dump a cannon over the side, you can get it back so long as the ship is not captured. You just send people down and bring them back up. Yeah, but I mean, it's be a bit of a mess, surely. Well, sure, but it's it's. it's and also, it's, you need to remember where you left it. <laughs> Sorry, well, I need to stop being facetious. Um, this, I, I'm these, not these sure are, I'm going to adopt this guy. These are problems. These are certainly problems. Yeah, that uh, that would that would that would plague that would plague uh, anybody dumping their cannons over the side. But yeah, so you, it's up to you. I mean, up till this point, though, up to this point, there's there's a lot going for him. Just happens to be just happens to be this is the end of the road for him the end of yeah. the roads for him oh boom very good <laughs> two two puns in, in one uh, 
in one uh, case study of, of an individual. Josh, thank you for taking us through what seems to be a, a fair old chunk of French naval history. I, I like that we've done the French perspective. Um, I had hoped that there'd be a little bit more that we could do to rehabilitate the reputation of the French Navy. Um, plenty of courage, endless mm. amounts of courage, um, but just not a huge amount of success. Um, mm. And so in, in that sense, it does sort of feel as though we've reinforced this idea that the Royal Navy is is mm. really rather good when it comes to well, facing the French, at least, but perhaps indeed. less so against the Americans. Mm. <laughs> uh, well, this is the key, actually. This is the key. If it, maybe we can, maybe at some point down the line, we'll organize some other episode where we look at not admirals, but captains and commodores. And notable is the fact that the Americans had success in single ship actions. If you put a battle fleet against the Royal Navy from the American point of view, maybe it wouldn't have been so successful. And again, um, we can see that the French did on lower level uh, have some success. So maybe we need to look at some more swashbuckling types rather than admirals to find to find the redemption of French uh, French uh, naval arms. I don't know. There we go. There's a, a tantalizing promise for the future folks, although it, we can't sadly squeeze it into naval month, but it is something to, to look out for mm. for the future. Josh, thank you as ever for coming on and offering us an absolute riot of an episode. Uh, amusing as well as poignant um so you are on twitter at land of history i know folks have heard this before i don't care listen to it again go follow josh on twitter at land of history your book bullocks grain and good madeira is available from hellion i've said this again again i make no apologies for repeating it folks go and buy it from hellion please rather than amazon jeff bezos does not need your money he's spending it on rocket fuel that's how little he needs your money Josh, however, if you buy through Hellion, will actually get a half-decent cut uh, rather than that cut going straight into Jeff Bezos' pocket. So please go buy it at hellion.co.uk, Bullocks, Grain and Good Madeira. And you also wrote Wild East a while back, mm -hmm. um, yes. which is not Napoleonic-related, but if folks are enjoying your work, I would strongly suggest that they go and have a little look at that. So thank you very much for joining us and come back again soon. I'll be delighted. Thank you for having me. Before you go, do me a favour, like, subscribe, share and leave a review. It'll cost a couple of seconds of your time, but it makes a huge difference to the algorithms which push this podcast out around the world. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, you've heard my spiel on this often enough in previous episodes, but essentially everything gets reinvested into growing the content from tech upgrades to new kit aimed at bringing you more variety to the show. There are perks for regular supporters. Check out the Patreon link for more on that. But if that's not for you and you want to leave a one-off tip, you can do that via Ko-fi. Each hour of podcasting has anything from four to six hours of time poured into it. So your support in whatever form it takes, financial or digital, is hugely appreciated. A particular thanks to my Emperor-level patrons, Mark Stoos and JC Kaiser, my Commander patrons, Ger Brown, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham, Marcus Cribb, Matt Bone and Zach Golby, and my mentioned in Dispatches patrons. Jeff Maple, Ed Koss, Indiana Fats, Mark Dewhurst, Jim Getz, Stephen Coulson, Colin Fieldhouse, Ryan Diamond, Alexandra Leon, Josh Keeney, Gareth Copeland, Ross Flowers, Jim Deary, Lucy Tatner, James Bevan, Rory Muir, Lynn Dawson, 
Beatrice de Graaf, Anna Vakulenko, John Haynes, Brendan Teeling, an anonymous Canadian, Alex Churchill, and Rob Griffith. Join me in a few days when Naval Month will continue. But until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleonicist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Thank you.